Hey friends, welcome to my podcast, Midlife Plot Twists. I'm your host, Lucy Baber. In this podcast, we explore all of the totally unexpected ways life seems to change as we inch closer to midlife. Most of our episodes are geared toward women in their late 30s to early 50s, and we talk about things like relationships and sudden career changes, making space for new life goals, making peace with the past, and coming to terms with all that weird stuff that happens to our bodies as we get older. I hope you'll finish each episode feeling inspired, informed, and empowered. I'm so excited that you've tuned in, and don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss a single episode of Midlife Plot Twists. So let's get started. All right. So, um, hey, everybody. This is Lucy, and you're listening to Midlife Plot Twist. Today, I'm super excited to have a friend of mine on. She's actually also my neighbor. So I'd like you all to meet my neighbor, Anne. Anne is a total sweetheart. I've known her for, gosh, how many years have I known you? It's four and a half years. Four and a half years since she moved on the block and we have gotten to know each other. We've lived on this like really unique, special block in Philadelphia that everybody's all up in each other's business and we (laughs) love it. And there have been small cohort of newcomers to the block in the past 10 years that have um, all been kind of in the same age range and life space in some way or another. And we've started kind of hanging out. We realized we were all sitting around in our houses, like a stone's throw away, watching the same shows every night and just kind of being bored. So we thought we could do that together and get to know each other. (laughs) And it's been lovely. So Anne is here to talk about some midlife plot twists of her own that she's had in the past, I don't know, several months to, I'm not even sure how long you want, how far back you want to go, but let's start before we kind of dive in. Can you tell me, I don't even know how old you are exactly, but age is a big factor in this podcast. So we should just establish that. Yes, I am 42. Okay. That I kind of would have guessed that. Yeah. 42. Yeah. Perfect. Okay. So I'm kind of, I should tell everybody, I haven't because of COVID, uh, we're in 2020. I haven't actually talked at length with Anne about the content that we're about to discuss tonight. So I'm kind of shooting blind a little bit and I'm a little bit excited about that because I know that Anne has a really compelling story to tell. And so I'm just kind of going to open it up for you to talk about the past couple of months for you. And then as it feels comfortable, I'm going to chime in with questions. Does that feel okay? Sure. I guess maybe I'll start with the April, May of yeah. 2020. Yeah. Okay. That's kind of where I was thinking if that's comfortable for you. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So I have known, and I'm sure we'll dive deeper into all of this, um, that I've had a drinking problem for many, many, many years. And it, as everyone knows, alcoholism is a progressive disease. And in April, I just had this thought that I need to make some changes immediately due to some physical health concerns and other kinds of, you know, isolation concerns and that kind of thing. Um, Again, because we're in 2020 and I will just step in real quick and let everyone know that Anne also lives alone. So we've all had very different quarantine situations, but I can imagine that that probably led to the, that feeling of isolation. 
Absolutely. And yeah, I mean, that was, you know, back when no one knew what was going on at mm-hmm. all. And so we were all just like, don't leave the house, <laughs> don't do anything. So yeah, it was very difficult. And I'm used to traveling a lot and everything. And um, so all of that was very difficult. My grandmother passed away in April from COVID. Right. Um, Gosh. Yeah. yeah. So it was just, you know, a very insane time for everyone. So that, that definitely led to a lot of the isolation. And mm-hmm. at this point um, I was drinking and this is <laughs> embarrassing to say outside of my um, AA walls that I was drinking up to four bottles of wine every single day. I was a day drinker starting as soon as I woke up and until I passed out at night. And can I back you up a second? What was, what did that look like prior to April? Like what was kind of like your norm outside of quarantine? Outside of quarantine, that was the norm for probably three years. Okay. Yeah. It was bad for quite an extended period of time. Mm -hmm. No judgment. I mean, yeah. Talking about it, right? (laughs) It was, yeah. Yeah. Um, And of course it stems way, 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 way many years back, even from that, of course. But so these, uh, everything, especially the physical stuff I was experiencing was really starting to scare me at this point. And so what I started doing, because AA meetings were not open. I started going to the Zoom AA meetings and Mm -hmm. um, started attending those while I was drinking, trying to find, you know, that spark, that inspiration that will make me just pull the trigger and go. Yeah. And I shared on these meetings and I was open with them and I said, I want to stop drinking, which is why I'm here, but I'm, I haven't. And So I went sporadically in April and May, and then at the end of May, um, my mother had actually been very concerned about my mental well-being and the isolation and everything. And she, she was concerned about my drinking, but that wasn't her primary concern. And so she took it upon herself to call around to different psychiatrists throughout the Philadelphia area because I was explaining to her it's which this is a whole other (laughs) soapbox that I have. Um, It's almost impossible to find a psychiatrist unless you're going out of network and then you have to wait six months to even see a psychiatrist and that kind of thing. So my mom did the legwork and got me this appointment with the psychiatrist the following Monday. And in that 90 minutes, he convinced me, which it didn't take much to, to pull the trigger and to go to rehab. So I spent that week preparing for it. And then June 12th, um, I went Mm. uh, to a rehabilitation center. Now, if I can interrupt just a second, had you first, had you ever been in AA before? About eight years ago, I was concerned about my drinking and I attended AA for 30 days. Then I drank again and went back for another couple of weeks and then stopped. So I did have that little bout mm-hmm. with AA, but hadn't gone back. And was this your first um, stay in a rehab facility? Yes. Okay. So tell me, tell me about that. How, how did that go for you? So my initial plan was to go and just detox, medically detox, because I was at the point where if I tried to do it by myself, 
I could have died. So I was going to go and do the medical detox for a week, took the week off of work, vacation days, um, told them I was going, I found a a safe, isolated place to go do yoga and meditation and relax. And and then I was going to leave after the detox, which would be about five to seven days. And about day three or four, I realized there's no way I could come back home after five days um, Mm. or seven days. So I decided to take medical leave for a couple of weeks and stay for the full 24 days. Okay. Rehab. Step back just a second, because I, my background, as you probably know, is in um, mental health. Right. I was a photographer, Uh, but I don't have a lot of experience with addiction treatment. What does a rehab facility feel like? What does it look like? What, like, are you interacting with other people during that intense detox? What were you experiencing physically and emotionally? Like walk me through that a little bit. Um, And I don't know, like, is it like in the movies? (laughs) Like like, (laughs) literally talk to me as if I don't know anything. Um, I mean, I guess parts are like the movies, but um, it depends on the movie. Yeah, sure. (laughs) It's not like one flew over the cuckoo's nest or, you know, like complete insanity or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so in the, the, and I'm sure every center varies, um, you know, depending on who's there. But the one that I went to, it was very scary. Just even, you know, arriving there, checking in, you know, you have to (laughs) strip down and they do all the blood work. They take your blood alcohol levels, you know, all that good stuff. You strip down so they can search you. Yep. Yep. And they take everything away. They take your cell phone. You don't have access to that. They they take everything from you. Um, And they put you in the detox outfit, which is khaki scrubs. Okay. Yeah. Top and bottom. That meant you were in the detox phase. So they heavily, heavily medicate you. I was on a medication called, um, Librium or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and that helped with the withdrawal symptoms and everything. And so I did a lot of sleeping. They gave mm-hmm. you, you know, stuff to help with sleep at night. And so you just, you slept a lot. And I was in there with, I would say probably about at the facility I was at was um, pretty hardcore drug addicts versus, you know, about 80% drug addicts and 20% alcoholics. So we were all combined together, which was eye-opening for me. Yeah. This does not sound like the LA spa kind of retreats (laughs) that you hear celebrities are going to. This is Mm -mm. like, this is serious. Oh yeah. It's the detox rooms where you stayed. I mean, it's just four white walls and you share a room with one other person who's also detoxing, Mm. um, which is a lot of fun. And I mean, that's it. I mean, you have your bathroom and you you have this horribly flat pillow and one sheet and then a scratchy wool blanket. (laughs) So, and if you were awake, like, what did you do? What, like, was that a thing you could go. So they, at this center, and I'm sure it's, um, similar at others, but we had, they had different, um, meetings appropriate to different levels of patients and Mm. topics that are of importance and that kind of thing. They didn't do AA meetings really. They did one at night and it was optional. Okay. Um, so anyway, you could kind of choose your own schedule, but they, once you got out of detox, you were required to go to a lot more, but while you were in detox, if you could make it to one a day, they would 
be cool with that. And then there was a TV lounge for the detox people and you could just go in there and, but it was usually full of the men watching race car movies and stuff like that. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. But I have so many questions. I'm going to have to hold myself back, but like (laughs) my first, my first question was, um, I'm going to just spit the mouth out so we can get that up, get it out of the way. Uh, how was it in COVID times? Like were people masked? Were they like testing you? Were, was it socially distanced? And then my second question is how did the staff treat you? Like, did it feel nurturing or was it more like, like harsh or like more like just medical? Like what was that vibe like? Yeah. So as far as COVID, it felt very safe. They didn't require a COVID test. Okay. Um, no, they didn't. Did they like take your temperature when you came? Oh in? yeah. I mean, I'm sure they had to do that. Right. Yeah. They had a tent set up outside of the building. So when we okay. pulled around, I had to get out and, um, a gentleman in a full like body gear thing that he, uh, took your temperature and, and all that. Okay. And then they escorted you in um, and then proceeded from there. But all of the staff members wore masks. Um, mm-hmm. They did not require the patients to wear masks. Okay. Which was interesting. They did try to socially distance as much as possible, but it was full. Yeah. <laughs> the rehab, all of them are full. It's a problem right now. So, yeah. I, that was the first thing out of my mouth the day we shut down was we don't have the mental health infrastructure for this. Mm-mm. So nope. I still like, I'm like, how, what's the plan guys? Like, right. how are we getting through this? Because it's not over yet. So right. yeah, I, that makes a lot of sense to me. Yep. And then how, well, like, what was the vibe? Like, how did, how did the staff treat you? Did you feel comfortable? Did, were people like attending to you as a person or did it feel more like, that rotating kind of like medical staff when you're in the hospital? It didn't feel, no, it felt more personal than that. Okay. And it also depended on the, the staff member. Yeah. I didn't have any issues with any of the staff members, but you know, I'm a rule follower. I was very good about going to all my meetings and, you know, doing all my assignments and turning in everything on time and making my bed and, um, earning my phone time and all those kinds of things. Um, whereas, a significant number of people in there were not as law abiding. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. so, you know, they had a lot of issues and always complained about the staff and how they didn't, the staff didn't care about them as a human being, but that was not my experience at all. Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. So you go through detox. It sounds like you were sleeping it off. Most of it. Um, like again, like in the movies, they show people having like really intense physical reactions. Like, did you experience that? Or was it kind of just like a, a very sleepy haze until you woke up one day and needed less beds? Yeah, it was, it's all a major haze. There are, I barely remember, I barely remember anything, The at least the first three, four days. Mm-hmm. And I think I moved up to out of detox on my sixth day, but the medicine that they give you on, it just, you know, creates that fog and that haze and everything. Yeah. And so that's the purpose of it. I think is just so you don't remember. Um, but I wasn't, I wasn't like 
laying in bed. Sometimes I got the chills and stuff, but I didn't have any nausea or vomiting. They give you nausea medicine if you do mm-hmm. feel nauseous. So it, it wasn't a horrible physically for me, horrible yeah. experience, but the Librium took a long time. My liver was a huge concern for them. Mm-hmm. Um, really kind of caused a little bit of a panic. Mm. And so the physical reactions weren't horrible for me. The Librium, which is what they use to give you to create that fog and make it so that you don't really remember the experience at all. Mm -hmm. It took quite a long time to get out of my system because my liver function was so low. Oh, okay. So even past, normally, I believe they said it has a 48 hour life cycle where it would be totally out of your system. It was still in my system in day well past that 48 hours and to the point where I was moved out of detox. So I wasn't being watched as closely and my floor mates were very concerned about me because I was walking into walls and they were concerned about maybe there was some neuro issue or whatnot. And so I went to the doctor the following day and he said, no, it's your liver function. It's your liver's taking forever to process the the medication. So that was the worst physical experience was that it took so long for that to get out of my system. Yeah. So how did they, and you might not know this. um, I'm not clear like how did they make those decisions about like how much of the Librium you got or like when it was time to kind of taper off and like, were they constantly like drawing more and more blood to like check your levels, especially with the liver? Yep. That's exactly what they did. They, I had a lot of blood work done while okay. there. Um, so they would check those kinds of things. And then just also, um, they did different, would ask you different questions about, you know, your mental state, you know, are you seeing double those kinds of things. And then once those kinds of weird side effects start wearing down, then they feel comfortable moving you out of detox. Mm-hmm. Um, I think they were moving people pretty quick too, because like I said, they were full and yeah. they needed the detox beds Yeah, because normally it's more like seven days that you're down on the detox floor, but okay. Yeah. Okay. So you kind of moved through detox. It seems yep. like mostly kind of a haze, but yep. you felt like you were in good hands at the very least that they were monitoring you. Yes. Um, and I did want to ask just for clarification, obviously it sounds like liver was a major concern. Were there other health concerns that you wanted to touch on like that were coming up even before you entered rehab? Yeah. So some of the physical thing, well, I guess I'll start from a couple of years ago when I went to get my annual exam and they did a full blood panel, Mm -hmm. the doctor noticed, the primary care physician noticed that my liver enzymes were elevated. And she asked about my drinking and said, you know, you should go get an ultrasound. They're elevated enough. You should have your liver looked at. Mm. And so I did. And they said, you have fatty liver, but it's not permanent damaged, permanently damaged. And at that point I was also 60 to 65 pounds heavier than I am now. So they said it could be due to your weight and that kind of thing. So I didn't really think about it. (laughs) Yeah. You know, you know, I can rant about that for a while. (laughs) I know I, Oh, I, yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So definitely it's, it sounds like your body was kind of telling on you even before. Well, yeah. So then 
fast forward another year and I had to get my appendix out exactly a year ago from uh, Wednesday or from Thursday. And yeah. the, the surgeon went in and said, and they had to do blood work. She noticed the high enzymes and mentioned mm-hmm. it. And then she had a conversation one-on-one with me after the surgery and said, I see signs of cirrhosis in your liver. You need mm-hmm. to go to a GI doctor immediately. Okay. Um, so that stuck with me, but I didn't do anything about it. And then I would say starting late December, January is when a lot of physical things, the tremors, the shaking, um, some muscle spasms. I had shooting pains down my legs and down my hands, Mm. numbness, some neuropathy kinds of things. And my brain function was just completely gone. Um, Mm. I couldn't remember anything. I felt like I couldn't make any decisions, that kind of thing. So, okay. So this, and this is where I kind of step into my friend role and talk really candidly with you. Obviously it might feel a little weird for a podcast, but uh, I'm curious and stop me at any point, but like for the past couple of years, like I feel like we all, the people close to you, like, and you were very uh, open about it. Like we all kind of chalked that up to depression. Right. Can you talk to me about that? Like what, what, are you able to sort through the differences at this point or what it feels very chicken or the egg to me, but like, how yeah. does, how did all of that play in? Like, that's what I'm starting to figure out now. So the past, since August, I've been working with an amazing therapist, Excellent. meeting with her twice a week. Um, mm-hmm. And the last two months, just because of all of the turmoil of being newly sober and working through all kinds of stuff with her. We haven't gotten that deep yet. I have depression. I've been on antidepressants since I was a teen before I ever touched alcohol or anything. So there is that underlying issue, but um, we're going to kind of dig in and see where the depression comes from. But I can tell you that after stopping to drink, the depression has been tremendously alleviated and I'm, I am on an antidepressant still, but okay. It, it, it's made a world of difference. I, I can hear it. I mean, not that you were ever closed off to talking openly about your life, but I can hear even just the clarity mm-hmm. and like the pep in your voice. Yeah. Um, it, it like you sound different. You sound more hopeful and more aware of your body and what's going on in your life. I'm really like, that feels really hopeful for me because that how do you feel about this? Like how, where are you right now? So it can vary <laughs> from day to day. Um, but I am every day, single day I have gratitude and I have hope where that was completely gone before. So despite all of those challenges, I now know that I can get through them. I don't have to run away from them. I don't have to hide from them. Mm. I need to face them, you know, and, and, resolve those kinds of things. And so I still have that outlook mm-hmm. um, every day, but some days are more challenging than others for everyone. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, obviously like the thing about a major like break in your circumstances is that like eventually things kind of filter back to normal and right now normal is so abnormal that Mm -hmm. you know like it's not like quarantine went away or you know 
any of the other stressors. So it is, it does sound like it, it would need to be like a, a daily decision to keep at it. Yep. Rather than continuing the like day to day of what rehab looks like. Cause I would imagine from after detox, it probably, it sounds like it looks like a lot of therapy, a lot of groups, mm. a lot of right trying your best to kind of improve day by day until suddenly you're going home. What I want to, what I think I want to get at here is taking a step back for the purposes of our podcast, if that's okay. How, how has this impacted your view of yourself and how, like, the thing, okay, the thing that I'm kind of realizing in these conversations as far as like midlife plot twists <laughs> is the more I talk to people, the more I realize not all plot t- twists feel like surprises. Like for a lot of people, it feels like this was kind of inevitable and it was just a matter of like, when Do, can you relate to that? And like, how are you processing the past several months? right now for yourself? Like, how are you feeling about all this in regards to what you thought life was going to look like at 42? Wow. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I, yeah, I could go down so many paths with, um, <laughs> with that. Well, I can say that my life looks absolutely nothing like what I thought life was going to be at 42 for sure. Uh, mm-hmm. that's been a really, and this is where I'm going to get emotional probably <laughs> talking about all of this. That's okay. You know, I thought I'd be married and have a couple kids and, you know, be settled, have my career. And not that things would always be, you know, peaches or anything, but, mm-hmm. you know, I would have that. And my life is the complete opposite. And it's due to my alcoholism. Um, mm-hmm. I, I blew that. So that's been really hard to process sober. I knew it deep down. And to your point, yes, I do relate with this was inevitable. I've been thinking about rehab for years, Lucy, years. Like, when is the right time? I know I need this. I know I can't do it any other way. I know I'm an alcoholic, but I can't say it out loud. You know, like I knew it for years, years, many, many years. And I knew that was going to have to happen or I was going to die. And so that's the point that it got to for me. And so I, I, I was like, okay, here's the time. So the changes that have been occurring when I, I remember when I got home, I just didn't even know what to do with life. Yeah. <laughs> I, I was just sitting there and it was, I, I, I was exhausted. I slept a lot and it was hard. I, I pushed myself back to work way too early. I went, I came home, took a day off and went back to work. And that was a huge mistake, huge mistake. Well, it's like, but, like, how do you make that decision? Because otherwise your alternative is what, sit around and think about it? Like, right. I don't know that anyone would know what the right answer is. Well, for me, it's because I didn't realize that my, I didn't realize the amount of brain fog and Mm. cognitive lack of cognitive function that was going to last for, I mean, it's still not gone. They said it's six months is when it really starts to clear for you. Wow. Um, And how many months are you at this point? Four months, four months, um, on Friday. Okay. So anyway, I didn't do a whole lot of processing then. It was just weird. Did a lot of sleeping. And and for me, I shouldn't have gone back to work because I was so exhausted. I would literally shut my eyes and it would be two hours later and I missed meeting. It was, it was, uh, so yeah. it was that kind of thing. But then 
slowly, you know, I, I kind of got back into the groove and I started making, you know, really positive changes, like purging things out of my house and, you know, mm. redoing rooms and just having this like huge burst of energy to do things around the house and, and really make it feel my own and that kind of thing and doing some more spiritual kinds of things and going to a lot of meetings. Um, and so right now my focus has been a lot on work because mm -hmm. I've had issues there. Um, sure. Yeah. I'm sure there's a lot of cleanup to do. Exactly. A lot of, a lot of cleanup. So, but even more so that you mentioned, you know, how I see my, just myself now mm -hmm. and it changes and work, like I said, has been very difficult because I made so many mistakes and I've been made to feel like I'm a bad person who made bad mistakes instead of a good person who made mistakes and is cleaning mm. them up. Uh. Um, so that's been hard and, and, you know, taken a toll, but then it's also made me feel I'm proud of myself for doing what I did, you know, pulling the trigger and absolutely, you know, knowing I have that strength to do that. And I hope that, you know, I can help others feel comfortable making that decision even before, you know, I got to the point where I did. So yeah. Anyway, it's yeah. It, it changes day by day. That makes a lot of sense. I think, um, I would imagine also like now you have some new relationships in your life as far as people you've, have you gotten close to people through the meetings and like, are you, is that a part of like, do the, I guess, do the meetings feel like they are a new social network for you or do they still just feel like a, a daily resource that you can use if you want? Like, I don't know, is there continuity between people? Have you gotten to know people really well through that? Yeah. So I actually went back to the group that I started going to in April and May before I went and stopped drinking, uh, mm -hmm. went away. And, um, and it's still virtual. Yeah. So okay. it was a group that started it was an in-person group and then went virtual when COVID um, happened. And then they decided to make it hundred percent virtual. They're not, never going to go back to um, in-person. So there are folks hmm. from everywhere who kind of come to this meeting. And uh, anyway, I consider that my home group. Um, and I do consider them a social network. I chat with several of the women on, you know, on the phone and have some tentative plans, you know, to meet in person, hopefully soon. So mm -hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it's been a really helpful social network. Yeah, I can imagine. I guess the reason I brought up the, the support network is then my next question is like, does it feel like this is common for like women in this? Like my guess is it feels like it's common for women in this age range in particular, but what are you seeing? Like you're kind of the boots on the ground right now. Like are you seeing similar stories to your own or does it feel like it's kind of all over the place? No, it's, it's very, very similar stories. And even if it's not the same, you know, exact actions that occur, we all have, it's helpful to hear that we all have the same way of thinking. Yeah. And it, I remember when I started going to these meetings, even way before when I tried it for that 30 day period, I, I was just utterly shocked. I'm like, how, I thought that was my secret that I developed on my own of how to hide alcohol or how to do this mm. or, 
you know, how to manipulate that or how to get out of this, you know, and we all think the same way and came up with the same tricks. And so having, and having that same compulsion where our minds just obsessed with alcohol, it's comforting to have that, um, in common with, with other folks. Um, and so, yeah, so we all have the same story essentially. That makes sense. I remember in grad school, uh, for, for therapy there, we had to do a group class to teach us how to be group therapists, like facilitate groups. But the way that they structured our class was we all had to basically participate as if we were in group therapy kind of. And I remember, I don't remember what the content looked like, because that sounds absurd to me now, but it it worked somehow. (laughs) We all kind of (laughs) disclosed some level of personal things in that classroom setting Mm -hmm. and felt like a, like a group, like we were all supporting each other. And I remember the, the, my takeaway was the professor told us there's this counseling term called uh, universality. And it basically is exactly what you just described. It is when two or more are gathered in a group setting, most people think I am the only person who has this specific thing. Mm -hmm. But if any one of those people were to say it out loud, odds are like nine times out of 10, you'll find that other people also have that same thing. Mm -hmm. And it's like, that's fascinating to me that, you know, we do, a lot of us go through life thinking, this is just me. I'm the weirdo. Somehow everyone else is functioning and I've got this dirty secret that like, I have to do things this weird way. Mm -hmm. And yeah, the more, that's why I'm so passionate about talking to people and just like getting all of this out because I, I do really think that your story is not unique um, in a way that, you know, obviously your story is unique because you are wonderful and unique as a person, but your story is not like out there. I think a lot of people will listen to this and say, oh, wow, this is a wake up call on some, on some level. Maybe it's not alcohol. Maybe it's some other, you know, addiction or some Uh other secret, but I think that a lot of people feel that like inevitability that eventually I'm going to have to deal with this and yep. it's just going to catch up to me. Yep. It, and it, it will, you know, they call it the not yet. So you'll, you'll get there as, you know, if you're talking about alcoholism or drug addiction, um, mm. you'll always get there. I was told about them 10 years ago and, um, you know, ended up experiencing a lot of them. So uh, hopefully that, hopefully this will, inspire people to, uh, to go out and and get help. I mean, yeah, it's, it's made a world of difference for me. I'm, I'm so glad. And I really feel like your story is also uniquely helpful because I mean, to be honest, you're not even the only person I've heard of who has gone to rehab since quarantine started. Right. Like I, I kind of felt like it was just in the air that lots of people were kind of having to reckon with this stuff that they've been running from forever. Uh, because we're all just sitting around at home having to like just face ourselves for the first time ever. Right. So I, I, I'm especially grateful that you were able to speak to your experience going through that process in COVID times, because I think a lot of people have that added level of fear of like, well, now's definitely not the right time because of all this other stuff. But in fact, you kind of stared that straight down and said, no, this is the best time. It really was, um, you know, it gave me the space that I could take at work and, you know, didn't have to miss any travel and, 
you know, the stars aligned and I don't believe in coincidences, especially anymore. So it, it, it works. And, you know, I would suggest for, you know, alcoholics, you don't have to go to rehab, you know, hopefully you don't have to go to detox, just go find some open AA meetings on zoom. You don't have to go on camera. You don't have to introduce yourself and just listen in. That's how I started um, just Mm. to get some inspiration and, and uh, hopefully that might help as well. And I know I was talking to um, a former colleague of mine and um, she didn't know my story. This was about two weeks ago. And she's like, oh, hang on, before we catch up, I need to pour myself a big glass of wine. I hope you're joining me, aren't you? And I said, well, that's kind of part of our catch up tonight. (laughs) And so I told her and she almost started crying and said, Anne, I've been thinking about going to detox. Um, And uh, so anyway, we talked a lot about that. So the more that you open up to people, you know, the, I think the the less stigma there is attached to it. And hopefully that can lead more people to get help too. So. Absolutely. Now, what does, we talked a little bit about, you know, you're in therapy now, it seems mm-hmm. like you're kind of untangling a lot of the stuff that you need to kind of deal with right. emotionally. How is your health right now? Like, can you talk a little bit about like your long-term? Yep. So treatment? yeah, I am incredibly lucky that my liver enzymes are completely normal now. Wow. Yeah. And they were in the hospital, both the MD as well as the nurse that I met with on separate occasions said, you can never take another drink of alcohol. You have Mm. done permanent damage to your liver, I'm sure, because it was so bad. Wow. And, uh, so I'm, I'm very lucky that the liver enzymes are back to normal. Um, my liver function seems to be pretty normal. I'm going to have to continue it to monitor it every mm-hmm. six months for the next couple of years, just to ensure I don't have any permanent cirrhosis. I still do have fatty liver and I do have ulcers throughout my stomach, mm-hmm. uh, that are probably a residual side effect. Um, but other than that, I don't have anything permanent that's uh, concerning. Thank, thank God. Now, just, I'm just curious. Uh, you said you can't have another drop of alcohol, but does that also impact like medications that you're able to take? Like I, I doesn't like, is it Tylenol that messes with your liver or ibuprofen? Oh yes. They said, yeah, they don't want me taking Tylenol. Yep. Okay. But that's, that's it. Yeah. Tylenol. Um, and there are certain antidepressants and that type of thing that can affect your liver function. Mm -hmm. Um, but I'm not on any of those. So that's like, I'm, I'm also just aware and becoming more and more aware as I inch closer to my forties, uh, we really have to take our physical health into our own hands and become our own advocates and Mm -hmm. keeping track of like, if a doctor tells you, you cannot have Tylenol now, you're going to need to like advocate for yourself and remind other medical professionals, this is who I am and what I'm all about. Like, yep. Nobody's doing that for us at this age. So we have to do that for ourselves and like start to mentally track, like, this is my mm-hmm. limitations. And, you know, cause, cause specialists and doctors don't always communicate. Right. I'm very lucky that I have a great team that all came from this one psychiatrist. 
Okay. So he recommended the therapist and also the physician who recommended the GI person. They're all, and they all speak. So good. Um, I have a really strong team around me. Um, I'm very lucky that way. So yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. Well, one other question that I ask everybody, and I'm going to kind of put a twist on it too. Um, everybody that's been on my podcast and will be probably, I ask them if you could go back what would you tell your younger self? What do you wish you could tell your younger self? Um, so I'm going to ask you that, but also I'm going to ask if you could go back to like March, what do you wish you could have told your March self before this? Oh gosh. It's a, oh gosh, this is a hard one. For my younger <laughs> self, what I want to tell her is to love herself. Mm. I'm still not there yet though. So I don't feel like I could say that quite yet. Like, you know what I mean? Um, Yeah. And that's, that's a really big statement. Can we flesh that out a little bit? Like what, how would you have heard that when you were younger in a way that you might've been able to absorb it? I was teased, uh, I, I bullied, not teased, I was bullied. And I do not use that term lately a lot in my childhood. And no one cared, no one did anything. My, you know, I was told to grow a thick skin, don't let them get to you, but, you know, all of that kind of stuff. I went to the school counselor, they did nothing. I went to, um, and you know, it was, it was really, really bad. And I think a lot of it stems from that, which is one of the things that I'm unpacking with my therapist. Okay. Um, cause I've never had that real sense of self-worth and, you know, as you know, I have anxiety around, you know, being perfect or not doing anything at all. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. And so that lends itself to not having a lot of self-worth either. Um, sure. cause you're not perfect enough. So that's what I would want to tell her. That's what I'm working on, but I will, I would tell her that, everything is going to be okay. Mm. Everything will work out the way it should be. That's beautiful. Like that's so free of regret. Yep. Like that's, that's such a freeing thing to be able to realize. Yeah. I, uh, it is freeing because there's a lot that I did in my life that caused a lot of people pain, caused myself a lot of pain, delayed a lot of things in my life. You know, the drinking was one of them, but I don't regret any of them, because I think they've given me more empathy. And like I said, it's made me feel proud. Like I've worked towards something very, very hard and I continue to do so. Mm -hmm. And that gives me a great sense of pride. So I don't really regret it. And going back to the, you know, the March me, it would be the same thing. It's going to be okay. Mm. Because that person was a child too, you know? So absolutely. I, I wouldn't rush the march me and say, go now, go now, because it happened at the exact right time. It happened when it was supposed to happen. So talk, talk about that. How do you, what makes you say that? It all stemmed from my mom going to find that psychiatrist and then me talking to him. He's been like an angel mm. in my life. Um, and, you know, him helping me in a very calm and supportive way, like you need to go. And he was like, here's, we're going to, I'm going to make a plan with you. 
he spent extra time on the phone with me and you know, everything, the ball just got rolling and he, he's just been there for me and checked in on me at rehab and everything connecting me with the right people. And, um, none of that would have happened in March if I would have, you know, pushed through. And I, I just wasn't ready. I wasn't yeah. ready in March. You have to be really ready to make that change. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it sounds like it was really, I have, uh, I mean, you and I are very similar in our spiritual journeys. We've talked about that Mm -hmm. together, but I, regardless of my stance on religion at this point in my life, I do trust that the universe plops things into your lap when it's right. Yep. And it sounds like, and that's, that's really how I've always operated. Like, unless this falls right into my lap, I'm, I'm not always going to like dive head first. I'm going to wait until it feels like the stars are aligning. And most of the time, if you're, if you're kind of open to seeing and receiving that it does happen. So it sounds like what you're saying is, you know, March, you in hindsight, you're able to recognize the stars weren't aligned yet. Like it's not so much it's, I, I want to be careful, I guess, because I don't want anyone to hear like, well, if, if you don't have that perfect psychiatrist, don't go right. now. But right. at the same time, like the universe really kind of was leading you on a journey and provided all of the right things at the right time. And, and you don't, you're not going to have that clarity until you look back. Right. But also it's probably not going to work until it all lines up. Right. And yeah, I mean, mine happened to be that psychiatrist that helped me, you know, make that pivot and just Mm -hmm. pull the trigger. But, you know, for a lot of people, you know, and and that was my lowest low for a lot of people, their lowest low is being passed out in a motel room with no money and, you know, nothing to their name. And I am thankful I didn't have to get to that point. Some people recognize it that they're alcoholics, you know, early, early on when they're just drinking a bottle of wine a day or five days a week. And so, Mm. you know, it, it just, it just varies. You'll know when the time is right. Don't procrastinate. That's definitely not what I'm saying. (laughs) No. And I I didn't hear, I don't think anyone that way either, but I, I do also know as somebody, as a personality type that can be really stubborn. Yeah. If you're looking for loopholes, you'll find it. Right. Right. (laughs) So I want to make sure that people hear like, do the things you got to do. And also when the timing is right, it will work and trust that that's the case. I mean, this is, this has been really amazing to be able to hear you talk about your journey. And, um, like I said, we hadn't even really, we lived two doors down from each other. We could have had this conversation (laughs) across the patios, but, um, I feel really honored that you were willing to share this not only with me, but with anyone who's listening to this podcast, I, I know that it was, it's a very personal story. And so I don't take it lightly that you volunteered to share with people. So thank you very much for that. No problem. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah. Is there anything else that you wanted to make sure we got in here before I let you go? Any other like takeaways or interesting pieces of it that we might've missed? that you think might be helpful for people? No, I I can't, I can't think of anything other than just, it shocks me constantly, the miracles that are happening in my life Mm. um, since I quit drinking. Um, 
Wow. It's true. I mean, literally miracles. I mean, that could be a whole separate podcast. (laughs) So, um, you know, there's things to look forward to. Um, so just hang in there. (laughs) That's awesome. Yeah. I'm so glad you ended with that. There's things to look forward to. Yeah. That is good stuff. I'm going to hold on to that for myself. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much for listening to this episode of midlife plot twists. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button and show some extra love by leaving a review. I'd love to hear from you. You can reach me on my website at lucybaberphotography.com or on Instagram at lucybaber. Thank you so much for joining me and I can't wait to chat again soon. Until next time.